Hear now the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need your help. We are weary from another week. We each come in here carrying burdens all our own. But would you use your word today to lift those burdens from us and to cause us to know the kind of joy that only Jesus can really bring? In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. The way you're introduced to somebody matters a great deal. You can probably think of relationships you've had in your life that maybe you had a bad beginning, a bad introduction to them, and you just never liked the person for whatever reason. And if you really thought about it, it probably goes back to how you first met them. Um, But in either case, whether you find yourself liking somebody, disliking somebody, um, the reality is the way that you're introduced to them actually can have a tremendous impact. And I would say that is doubly true in the ministry, when it comes to the ministry of the word, especially that's important. I remember when I came to this church in the ye olden days of 2016, um, and I remember thinking about the first sermon that I would, would preach for you all uh, as I was candidating, the very first uh, word that I would, would bring to you as a church. And, and I remember, to me, it was very important that as a, as a church, as a session, as church members, that we set off on the right direction from the very beginning. And so I remember that first sermon. Maybe you remember it, maybe not. Uh, but it was on the Great Commission for Matthew 28. And you might say, well, why did you pick that text? And the reason I picked it was I wanted everything that I did and wanted everything that we as a church did uh, to all be serving this one all-encompassing idea. Uh, I wanted it to be our target. I wanted it to be our compass. I wanted it to be our, our North Star. And I still do. I'm speaking in past tense, but that's not. <laughs> I don't mean it in the past tense. Um, because if we start off as a church on the wrong foot, it can lead to misunderstandings, miscommunications, and a whole lot of problems. 
Um, And in a sense, there is something else to it as well. I picked that text because I didn't just want you to know something about yourselves and what you as a church are, are supposed to be like, but I also wanted you to know me in a certain sense. I wanted you to know my mindset. I wanted you to know what was most important to me. What did I believe about myself? What did I believe about this church? And Jesus, in this passage this morning, performs what John says is his first sign as the Messiah. And the question that I sort of carry into this passage as I'm thinking about this miracle of making wine is, is there something in this miracle that Jesus is telling us about himself as he is launching into his own public ministry? And I think there is something here. I think there's something here that's more significant than just, wow, Jesus can make wine. Um, I think we, we think about that, and that is miraculous. That is extraordinary to make that much wine, about maybe 100 gallons or so of wine. That's, that's remarkable. Um, but if all we learn about Jesus here is, yes, he can actually make water into wine, I think that we, we miss this. I think we're impoverished if that's all that we see here is just a raw miracle for the sake of giving people wine. And so what I want us to see this morning, I think we're going to notice what's going on here in three points. The situation, the sun, and the sign. The situation, the sun, and the sign. Uh, As far as the first, we have the situation. Three days have passed since Jesus called Nathanael. And you remember that moment where he told him that I will be the ladder between heaven and earth. I will be the one who, who broaches that distance between you and God. And Jesus said that three days before. And now here he is. He's at this wedding. And the situation is that Mary is, is, is involved in the wedding somehow. Probably it looks like she's assisting in the wedding. She seems to be at the center of things. Um, some have suggested she may have been related to the newlyweds. And that would explain why she's so involved in this wedding. Because, you know, you notice this. She tells the servants what to do, and they do it. Um, She has inside information about the the wedding party. She knows when the wine runs out before even the the superintendent of the wedding knows. Uh, she's, She's intimately involved in the designs of this wedding, this wedding feast. And in either case, though, Jesus is invited as well along with his disciples, and that places him there. And there's something to remember about first century weddings, especially in the Jewish tradition. Um, Jewish weddings lasted a week. Sometimes they lasted more than a week. Uh, If you were really going extravagant, it would last even weeks, plural. And so party hosts had a really major responsibility. Your responsibility was keep the party going. You had to be an excellent host. And if you failed at that, if you failed at that task of keeping the wedding going, keeping the party going. It was a matter of social embarrassment for you. And so the issue before Jesus is his mother's working to make sure this wedding goes off without a hitch. And there is this crucial moment where the hosts are about to be hugely embarrassed. Um, And that's the immediate situation Jesus' first miracle takes place in. And the situation is they're out of wine. Now, let's just parenthetically Um, talk about the miracle itself, but especially about the miracle that, or the thing that it relates to, the thing that really is sort of unavoidable, almost the elephant in the room. 
And that is the question of, of alcohol. This is what the wedding of Cana raises. It's really difficult to appreciate the wedding at Cana if you don't think very much about what the Bible has to say about alcohol, because this first miracle is literally saturated in alcohol. Uh, you have to address it. You have to know how to think about it. Um, in Palestine, grapes were ripened on the vine from June to September. Once September came, you had to get those grapes off the vine, at which point you had to crush them. You had to do something with them. In the storyline now, in the narrative, this wedding takes place sometime between October and May, which means that this is not the season for fresh grapes. This is not the time when you would go to the store and say, huh, I think I'll buy a bunch of grapes. There wouldn't be any grapes. Um, They've all been pulled off the vines. They've been picked at this point. And so what that means is that the, the wine that has been served at this wedding is almost certainly alcoholic because over a matter of months, once it's been picked, You've got those grapes that are crushed. The yeasts on the skins consume the sugar in the juices. We've talked about this in the past. Um, And so you couldn't keep fresh grape juice for very long uh, in Israel at this time. We didn't have uh, uh, pasteurization. We didn't have refrigeration, the sort of things that can cause yeast to stall out so that it doesn't consume the sugar. Now, for a lot of folks, when they think about alcohol, it it is a zero sum game. It is either totally evil, totally wicked, or it's something that you shouldn't even think about how you indulge in. Uh, I did visit a church when we lived in Kansas, and I remember the pastor one Sunday saying, alcohol is the devil's poison, and one drop can destroy a human soul. And, uh, you know, I knew I worked for somebody who, if he went to a restaurant, if that restaurant served any kind of alcohol, he would sit with his back to the bar and refused to even look at it or even acknowledge it. He had very strong views on the issues of, of alcohol. But then you do also have this, this sort of other extreme end, or you can have a very, uh, another extreme end that's so permissive that isn't even reflective about drunkenness, isn't even reflective about what happens if this thing is abused, this good thing that God's given to us if it gets abused. And sometimes folks will just say, God is gracious, God is good, you know, and they'll indulge. And I've known people like that before. And yet the scripture is also clear. Paul says we should not sin so that grace may abound. And so you have these two extremes. You have the the, the question on the one hand, the, the, the answer on the one hand says it's always evil, it's always wrong. And on the other hand, you say... There are people who say, it doesn't matter what anybody does. You can drink as much as you want. Praise be to God. And the Bible actually makes two affirmations about alcohol. The first affirmation the Bible makes about alcohol is this. And I think we most, most of us know this. Drunkenness is a sin. Um, the Old Testament in numerous places warns against the sin of drunkenness. Sometimes it just calls it drinking strong drink. Uh, Proverbs talks about how important it is for kings to not become drunk because it says that if they do, they'll forget what's been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Uh, In Ecclesiastes, it says, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So you are blessed if the rulers over you are not drunkards. Um, Sometimes Isaiah will describe drunkenness as being to drink strong drink, and it's spoken of as a judgment. I'm pouring out wine upon you. 
You're going to drink the bull of God's wrath all the way to the bottom. These are references to being made drunk, and it's a form of judgment from God. And then 1 Peter tells us that drunkenness is what unbelievers do. Drunkenness is what unbelievers do, according to 1 Peter. And so, you know, if we're thinking about alcohol, we want to make that affirmation up front that drunkenness is against the teaching and spirit of the Old and New Testaments. Drunkenness is a sin. And if you drink to the point of making foolish decisions or losing control, the Bible says you have sinned and you need to repent. But the Bible also makes another affirmation that balances this out, and that is that alcohol is also a blessing. Psalm 104.15 says, God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. Uh, Micah 6.15 talks about how the removal of wine from the land is a sign of God's judgment. A land without wine is a land that's under the judgment of God. And by inference, a land that is with wine is a land that's blessed. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.18 says that it is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun. So in the text of Scripture, you have these two principles. Drunkenness is a sin and alcohol is a blessing and a source of joy. Can these be harmonized? Well, absolutely. And it almost takes no effort to harmonize them. How do you harmonize? You, you drink alcohol, but you don't get drunk. Or you're permitted to drink alcohol. And as long as you don't get drunk. So the right amount of alcohol in Scripture is described as a blessing and the wrong amount is a curse. But the application, I think, here is very straightforward. If you're going to have a beer, have one. Have one glass of wine, not six. Uh, if you're going to have an old-fashioned, have one, not three, right? Experience the kind of joy that would have been at this wedding without falling over into where you're breaking God's law and losing control of yourself. And then there is also this warning that needs to be said as well. If there are some people who are incapable of moderation when it comes to God's blessings, this can be true of food. It can certainly be true of alcohol as well. But if you're incapable of moderation... If you are incapable of controlling yourself, then I think the pastoral and wise thing is to tell you that you should not drink. If you can't drink in moderation, do not drink at all. But we have to also caution very strongly against judging anyone who partakes in something that Jesus would make, that the disciples would enjoy, and that the church throughout all of church history has enjoyed in good conscience and in moderation for thousands of years. And so bringing these two affirmations of Scripture together, drunkenness is a sin and alcohol is a blessing, I think it helps us sort of understand why Jesus, in good conscience, could make a hundred gallons of rich, excellent wine for this wedding. Because just like food in excess is the sin of gluttony, wine in excess is the sin of drunkenness. And we see here that even a good thing and even a blessing can become a curse when it's not enjoyed in moderation. So notice this. So that's, that's, not, that's, my, that's my parenthetical statement about alcohol. I, it's, I find it hard to imagine talking about the wedding of Cana and having absolutely no reference at all to whether or not wine is a good thing because Jesus produces it here. The question is, is Jesus sinning by introducing this substance and I think the testimony of Scripture is certainly that he is not sinning by providing this. 
So notice what we've seen, though. And I mentioned this verse already. No wine means no gladness. God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. Think about how that applies to this situation and to this wedding. Um, We've seen that no wine is like a judgment of God. It's like to steal joy away. There's an old rabbinic saying, no wine. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. And so the situation here is this wedding is experiencing a wine shortage, but it is also experiencing, because it is experiencing a wine shortage, is experiencing a joy shortage. So the, the concern here is, is not, Jesus' concern is not, they're not partying hard enough, right? That's not, that's not the concern of Jesus. It is that the goodness that wine represents is missing from this wedding, there is a rejoicing that is supposed to happen here, and it can't happen. It's, it's almost like Mary is going to her son, and she's saying, they have no joy. This is a real miracle. This is a, an actual miracle. It is not just a parable, but I would suggest this, that this is also a parable of the reason Jesus came. And it brings us around to the question of why Jesus would do this as his first miracle. Because there's a larger principle that this narrative gives us and it's this joy always runs out eventually joy always runs out eventually and, and maybe you've seen this in your own life maybe you've you've noticed this in uh in how you live but but we're bound to hit a point where we realize we don't have joy um life doesn't end up working out the way that we we thought it would uh it doesn't look the way that we expected it to Um, And you know this, if you've ever even gone on a vacation, usually vacations don't go the way that you expect, right? Inevitably, you leave and you are on an emotional high. This is going to be the greatest moment of my life. All my sorrows and toils for the last few months are going to be erased by this magical week of my life. And then you get home and you say, well, I just feel like I worked all week. I just did it somewhere else other than my own house, you know. Um, Our life cannot be sustained as a series of emotional highs. Happiness can't be sustained. Eventually, things burn out. And when this happens, we can respond in two ways that are wrong. One of the ways we can respond when the happiness runs out, when the joy runs out, is we can blame the things. We can, we can say, well, look, I, I, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied right now because the newest iPhone came out. And I won't be happy until I get it. You know, you blame the thing and say, it's my old phone's fault. Or, or maybe you say, I, I'm not satisfied in my marriage. My wife isn't what I thought she was going to be when we first met. Or you might say, I need to upgrade my car. I, I'm not satisfied because I've got too old of a vehicle. And if only I had a, a better car, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be joyful. And so you just start running through your life diagnosing what you think might be wrong and what do you do you you point to the things around you as if they were the problem and of course if you think that then you're going to start replacing those things thinking now maybe i'll be happy that's one way to do it and so what you do is you're tempted to point to things as if they're the problem but then you can also respond another way and i don't recommend it and that's blame yourself you know, you beat yourself up. You say, I've made, I've made poor choices. I've made bad choices. I put myself in this situation. If I was just a better person, if I, if I just tried harder, maybe then I'd find joy. 
If only I was different. And so we end up blaming uh, ourselves. Or we can do the Christian thing. How does a Christian respond to that lack of joy and that lack of happiness in our lives? And the answer is, you blame your separation from God. You blame your separation from God. And this is, this is the biblical answer here. Because you see, the problem isn't that, that you need to be better. <coughs> it isn't that the stuff around you needs to be better. It's not that, the, that your stuff needs to be better. It's that you and I are spiritual beings and we're separated from God. And until Christ brings us to God, we will keep turning up joyless and wondering why we and all our stuff keep failing. What we don't need is a change of situation. What we don't need is a change of possessions. What we don't need is a change of relationships, at least not fundamentally. That's not what we need. We can change all of those things, and it still wouldn't make us happy, and it wouldn't bring joy to our lives. Walker Percy, the the Catholic writer, observed that just because the external circumstances in our lives are all put together and everything is in order doesn't mean we're going to find joy. He, <clears throat> he asked this question. He says, why do people feel bad in good environments and bad in good environments? And the answer he gives is, he says, we're not organisms. Because with an organism, you can give it something and it will respond. Uh, if, it's, if a dog is hungry, you give it food and suddenly the dog is happy. Um, and it just works like that. But human beings aren't that way, right? We end up in good situations and we end up miserable, and, and he uses the illustration of a couple of illustrations. One is he says, he says, somewhere out there, there is a housewife in a beautiful suburb, in a beautiful kitchen with a refrigerator full of food. The air conditioner is working. She's got Wi-Fi, Netflix all day long, and she periodically thinks about walking into traffic. But she's in a good situation. But if we have good things, shouldn't we be happy? Shouldn't we be joyful? Shouldn't we be satisfied? And then he's from the South, so he knows where Gulfport is. He says, on the other hand, you've got a man standing on the beach in Gulfport looking to the South, watching a hurricane bearing down on his home and everything he's ever owned, and he's never felt more alive. He is in a bad situation, and he feels good. We are not organisms. We, you, you don't just give us good situations and everything is great. You don't just put us in bad situations and we're miserable. Sometimes we're in bad situations and we feel more alive than we've ever felt. How do you explain these sort of circumstances? And the answer is this. Joy and satisfaction do not line up with our life situation. Our joy and our life situation are not dependent on our situation to be lined up and perfect. There is no formula to the problem of question, the question of joy in our lives. In fact, it is often the case that the most successful and wealthy people are the most secretly miserable and, and what can often push them over the edge is this realization. If I have all of this, if I have the admiration of the crowds, if I go out in public and I'm famous and everybody knows who I am, and I have all this money and I could purchase everything that I want and I'm still not happy, then what sort of hope do I have? If I can't live with myself and I have everything, then is there any hope for me? And many, many people do lose hope and they decide they would rather end their own lives. Think of the celebrated writer Ernest Hemingway. 
Or think of the writer David Foster Wallace. Or think of Robin Williams. We were just watching a Robin Williams movie in our house this last week. We love Robin Williams. People, people love Robin Williams. Whenever that guy went out, people just saw him and they cheered right up. He had a fabulously uh, wealthy, he was a fabulously wealthy man. He had a tremendous mansion. Tony Scott, famous film director, made Top Gun, one of my favorite movies in my childhood. All of these people, wealthy, well-respected, loved by their peers at their creative peak. And yet those things that they chased didn't fill the void. We are not people who are joyful in good situations and miserable in bad situations. We're not organisms. And the answer is we have to understand what the Bible says about us. We were made to know God. And as long as we are separated from God by our sins, we will continue to feel friction and hopelessness in our lives and wonder why things aren't working out the way that we mapped it out to be. C.S. Lewis saw this problem. He said, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give joy to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If we find ourselves with a desire for, that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. And he's, and he's right. As long as we look around ourselves, look to ourselves, look to others, look to our situation to find satisfaction and joy, we're never going to find it. And so just as the wine and the joy of the party can run out, the reality is apart from God in Christ, the joy in our lives can run out too. So that's the situation. Second, though, we have the son. You see, Jesus' mother has expressed him to him this concern, but he responds the way a son ought to. At first, he reminds her, my, my hour has not yet come. By the way, he calls her woman. That's not a term of disrespect. Uh, it doesn't work now. I tried it yesterday with my wife, and it just doesn't work. Uh, but in the, in the first century, this was fine to call your mother woman. Um, <laughs> But uh, he says to her, he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, he knows who he is. He knows what he's on earth to do. He knows what his mission is. He knows what the plan for him is. And his response to her is, I will only do exactly what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it. And and Mary understands what he's saying. He's not saying he won't do it. Um, And she tells the servants to do whatever he says. And then, of course, we know what happens next. He transforms the water into something else, and then the joy comes. The joy was missing, and then Jesus performs the miracle, and things quickly change. Isn't Jesus showing us with this sign that real joy doesn't happen without real transformation? The idea that we could ever find joy while still being ourselves and staying the same way we are and still controlling our lives and basically staying as we are. That idea is just foolish. People want it though, right? They want life to be my way. I want to stay the same. I just want it to be better. You know, people feel this way about themselves. This is how they view their lives. And that's why people tend to see God as an add-on to their life. So if, if God starts to make demands of me and ask things of me, if church starts to become a, feel like a burden, then people will just cut themselves off from it because they'll say, look, I have figured out how to live my life my way. And Jesus says, there is no joy unless I change this water into something it was not before. And you will never know joy unless I change you. 
He's already laying the groundwork for the new birth here. And that's in chapter three. That's the next chapter. We're not there yet, though. Jesus says, you need to be born again. You need to be brought into a relationship with me. And if you aren't changed, there will be no joy. And you will still be in your sin. And your greatest problem will not be dealt with. So the wine is transformed. It's taken to the master of the banquet. Uh, the, the, The master of the banquet is the superintendent. He's the hub of the whole party. He's the one that decision-making runs through. And so the response that they get when they bring the wine to this man is everyone serves the good wine first. But when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You've saved the best for last. Alexander McLaren says this. He says, Jesus Christ keeps the best till the last. His gifts become sweeter every day. No time can ruin them. Advancing years make them more precious and more necessary. The end is better in this course than the beginning. And when life is over and we pass into the heavens, the word will come to our lips with surprise and with thankfulness as we find out how much better it is than we ever dreamed it would be. Lord, thou hast kept the good wine until now. Jesus single-handedly brings joy to those who were joyless before, and he does it through transformation. He, he did it for the water, and he does it for men and women, boys and girls all over the world every day. You may be a lifelong believer. You may be somebody who's been a Christian all your life, but do you see that fundamental need in your own soul for him to change you? Do you see that your life is always going to lack joy as long as you resist being changed by him? Or are you going to keep banging your head against the wall and wondering why you can't manufacture joy in your own life through your own efforts? That's the sun. Third, we have the sign. After the master of the banquet samples the wine, he praises its quality. John the, John the writer, John the son of Zebedee, writes this statement. He says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now remember what a sign does. I know I say this all the time. A sign points to something other than itself. This miracle is not about wine. This miracle shows us that Jesus doesn't object to alcohol for sure. And it it shows us that Jesus is capable of doing this miracle, which is amazing. And you should be amazed at the miracle. But if that's all we see here, we're missing the real point. This is a sign. How does Jesus introduce himself to the world in this moment? Think about this. Why, why this? Why wine? Right? He could have done anything as his first miracle. He could have raised the dead. He could have healed the blind. He could have made a paralyzed person walk. He could have stilled a storm. He could have multiplied, multiplied bread as his first miracle. But instead, he made about 100 gallons of fantastic wine. Why? Isn't Jesus showing us that his ministry is not about 
Serious faces and glum monks punishing themselves, filled with self-hatred and and misery. Isn't he showing us that his ministry is not meant to produce frowns? It's like right out of the gate, he wants us to know this, that at rock bottom, his life and ministry are about bringing joy. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says about this. Some Christians go around with grim looks and long faces. If they find themselves in the company of someone else who is having a good time, they immediately suspect the cause of the fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Jesus was not like that. He did not condemn those who were enjoying themselves, and he was not jealous of them. As a result, he was welcome at their gatherings, and those who had invited him listened to his teachings. Are you like that? If you are, you may find that people are not only pleased with your company, they may also be willing to listen to your testimony. There is something about truly joyful people that is just utterly irresistible. And, and maybe you can think of, of really joyful people you've known in your life and just how true you found that to be. Uh, You know, I think we may miss the fact that Jesus was a completely joyful person. Um, He was a man of sorrows, the scriptures tell us, and yet there was nobody who had more joy than Jesus Christ. Joy followed him wherever he went. He, He is a man who said that if his disciples didn't praise him, the rocks themselves would start singing. Uh, Wherever Jesus went, the trees of the forest would sing for joy and clap their hands according to the Psalms and according to the book of Isaiah. Jesus was not a joy magnet. He was a joy generator. All people want joy and they will chase it in all its forms. And if they get really desperate, they will accept its cheap substitute, happiness. Happiness is a cheap substitute for joy. It is a momentary thing. It is dependent on the situation. It ebbs and and it flows. When things are good, happiness is high. And when things are bad, happiness goes away. But biblical joy is, is something that lasts. You know, think about this. The apostles are in prison and what are they doing? It says that they are staying up late at night singing psalms and they're filled with joy. How is that even possible when they are almost certainly unhappy with the situation they're in? The answer is joy. See, the miracle that Jesus performs here at the wedding of Cana is a parable that teaches us something else about joy, and it is the most important lesson this morning. If you missed everything else, if you blanked out, you just woke up just now, listen to this. There is no joy without Jesus. When we think about our lives and and how we find joy, it's very tempting to think that there could be some sort of situation, a series of rules or principles that if we just follow the 10 points or the five points or whatever, we're going to feel satisfaction. But in this miracle, Jesus teaches us that we're out of joy and trying to find it apart from Jesus, the true master of the face will be a fool's errand. How do we get this joy? A joy that never runs out. A joy that doesn't come and go and ebb and flow depending on the situation. How do we have that? Our passage tells us. Mary speaks to the servants. She points to Jesus. She says, do whatever he tells you. 
And when they do that, the joy comes to the feast. Our passage this morning is a reminder that only by doing what Jesus says, by believing in his name, can we find peace or joy at all. Think about this. All of us, to one degree or another, have spent our lives doing whatever we say. But are we doing what Jesus says? Have you tired yet of looking for joy in in yourself or looking for it in things that always fail you or in people who always end up disappointing us one way or another? Have you tired of looking for joy in all the wrong places? Have you realized that as hard as you might work, as hard as you might fight, as hard as you might labor, your quest will always come up empty if the answer isn't found in Jesus? That's the message John has for us today. So let's put our trust in Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are all too easily find ourselves drinking from broken cisterns that don't satisfy or provide. We naturally look to ourselves. We look to our situation, we look to our belongings and believe even when we know it's not true that they might satisfy us. Maybe this thing will be the exception. And yet you have made us for yourself and our hearts will be restless as long as we're not resting in your son. And so would you minister to those here that you know, that know you, But they feel that temptation. They feel that urge to love the things and love the people and love the situation, but to forget you. Would you satisfy their hungry hearts and put all their hope in you alone? Help all of us to remember that the joy we have in you is a joy that can never be improved upon. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy you more, but it does mean we will never find a better answer in our lives. You are full of all hope and peace and joy. Remind us today that we all have all that we have needed comes from you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.